Welcome to L&D Disrupt, the podcast dedicated to helping you overcome workplace challenges and prepare for the future of work today. I'm your host, Nelson Sivalingam, and I'll be speaking with the movers, shakers, and pathbreakers in L&D who are reshaping their organizations right now. Join us each week as we delve into the highs and lows of work in the industry to get to the real nitty-gritty stuff that you actually care about. Welcome back to another episode of L&D Disrupt Live. This time, it's just me and Nelson trying something a bit different with the Q&A episode. I spent about 45 minutes asking Nelson your burning questions, interesting things I've seen online, and just diving into a few topics we've not discussed on the show before. I'm also recording this intro after the conversation's already taken place this time to give you a bit more insight into what you can expect on the episode. You can expect to learn why every performance conversation is a learning conversation, whether the four-day work week really offers flexibility in how we work and learn, how to get the most out of any trial for a tool you're testing out, and how to work out whether the old legacy tech still solves the current problems. We also discussed whether competence breeds confidence and L&D's role in that, and a few other things too. If you enjoyed this conversation and want to share any thoughts or questions of your own, you can let me and Nelson know on LinkedIn, and all the links you need are in the show notes below. So without further ado, on with today's show. Yeah, Nelson, today it's really a mix of questions for you, some from people who submitted them ahead of time, some things that I've seen other people asking online about other in other mediums, other topics, and also just some things I wanted to ask you from a nosy perspective. So uh, we've got a bit of a mixed bag today. But yeah, the first one we can yeah. keep with. Um, we got a great question from Rustica Lamb, who we know, both know quite well. Um, and it was basically quite an open-ended one for you, but... How do you think L&D can use augmented reality in in 2023? Yeah, I think augmented reality is is quite an exciting technology. Um, There's a lot that's been kind of spoken about um, VR, virtual reality. But I think I'm more excited uh, about augmented reality because of the ability to support learning transfer um, and performance support that that it enables um because essentially with the, the difference for, for those of you who are not familiar is with augmented reality you're essentially augmenting putting um graphics visuals on top of reality that we see through through the naked eye um whereas with virtual reality we're we're essentially entering a completely computer generated virtual world now with augmented reality what you able to do is essentially in the context of where we're operating, we're essentially able to um, nudge people and show people relevant learning um, and enable and support their performance um, in that relevant context, which makes it easier um, for you to be able to transfer and apply what you're learning and essentially generate feedback and create Apologies, I'm at the NEC for the world. Um, at the NEC for the world of learning, and the Wi-Fi isn't the best, so <laughs> bear with me. No, um, got you back. I think we were just yeah, picking up with uh, um, why you're excited to see how people can use AR from an L&D perspective. Yeah, so uh, I think what AI enables you to do is support and enable performance within that moment of need and context, because we're essentially adding. Um, graphics on top of the reality that we see. 
Um, you know, imagine being in a retail environment or a construction environment or a manufacturing environment where we're able to nudge people um, with relevant learning resources and knowledge within a context where they can transfer and apply what they're learning. So I think the opportunities for what we can do from a performance support and job aid perspective is very, very exciting. Um, also, it's an exciting way of creating an environment where people can practice what they learn. So simulating different scenarios that feel real because we're essentially augmenting uh, the, the real context there. So I think there's an exciting opportunity for um, enabling that near transfer and being able to practice within a safe environment, um, which can essentially help people build that competence um, far faster. So I think AI for me is, is a far more exciting technology than VR within the perspective of L&D. And I suppose part of it is deciding when to use it and where to use it. Like there's a time and a place. So maybe resisting that urge that everything needs to be AR. You know, like some of the best ones I've seen are quite gimmicky. And I, I imagine they work well in the short term, but not in the long term. So a good example I saw is that KFC creating these kitchens where you can practice the skills um, that you would need in a real life example. But it's kind of only relevant once, isn't it? So it's like, how do we pick our moments to use AR and use it kind of intentionally, I guess? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it, this is true for any type of, um, you know, quote unquote buzzword. Um, you know, what we don't want to fall into the trap of, um, you know, let's have a bit of AI, let's have a bit of VR. And, and the technology doesn't come first, right? It's not, let's find a use case for AR. It starts with the problem first and looking at how do we solve this problem and what technology and tools do we have available that will help solve that problem. And so one of the problems is, is creating um, a simulated environment for you to be able to practice what you're learning um, or to be able to learn with the opportunity of near transfer of that learning. And you're trying to, to, to find a way of effectively delivering that, then AR could be a great technology that enables that. And um, so it's, it's definitely not AR for the sake of AR, but, you know, realizing what the benefits or opportunities that AR provides that you wouldn't get otherwise from the other modes of, of learning that you might leverage. Yeah. And I guess like uh, some context, actually, just that might be useful to this. I had a bit of a research before the episode, but by 2024, there'll be 1.7 billion AR active user devices available. And it's like, if you look at the Statista graph, the trajectory of it is just going up, basically. And um, But one thing that was interesting with that research is that typically AR users tend to fall into the 60 to 34 age bracket. So it's kind of like the usage is going up, but maybe only within a certain demographic. And that might pose, I guess, a different challenge to L&D if thinking about the multi-generational workforce. Sorry to use another buzzword to describe a buzzword, but <laughs> be sure. But I, I think it also comes from the access to that technology in the first place, right? And I think um, a lot of when you look at VR and AR, um, a lot of that demographic gets familiar with that technology through gaming, right? A, a lot of people who are probably familiar with VR are more likely used it within a gaming context than they have used it within a work environment, um, and you know, gamers tend to uh, concentrate around the same demographic that you've said. So if you look at the majority of gamers fall onto that demographic. However, you are getting, um, for example, Apple um, year on year with every generation of their iPhone that they've brought out, have built in more capabilities to support AR. Um, and with how 
widely use the iPhone is, that takes a technology like AR even more mainstream and accessible. And so now you're able to create AR content that anyone who's got an iPhone device would be able to essentially engage with, uh, which makes the technology far more accessible um, and which, again, makes it easier for L&D teams to be able to leverage something like AR uh, versus, you know, VR, for example, it's, it's still a very, very expensive, you know, I've seen organizations, for, for example, within retail, use the, the kind of cardboard box and put your phone headset into it. Um, but when you're investing in VR headsets for large population of the workforce, it's still very resource intensive and expensive. Um, and so I think with the direction and, and development that's happening in AR, I think we'll see a situation where we'd be able to make it a lot more accessible quicker. Yeah, no, definitely. And a great point there, actually, that is companies don't necessarily need to invest in any of these tools for the long term. If you have a particular project that's coming up, you can rent the equipment for a short term. People often overlook that um, kind of angle as well, don't they? That you don't necessarily have to own the tools or have it for the long term. You could just use it as a, a one off. Um, just before moving to the next question I have for you, Nelson, if anyone listening live wants to drop in a question in the chat, then do feel free. I've got some here that we got before the show, but yeah, it'd be great to take some live as well. Um, Ross Stevenson, friend of the show, um, recently shared an interesting stat on LinkedIn that was in a piece of research from 360 Learning. 60% of cases, the learning needs of the individual were not identified until performance reviews. It was kind of like putting the cart before the horse, I guess, Nelson, but people are like often learning organically as they work or encouraging people to learn in certain ways. And it's not until that performance review process that they're going, actually, what are you trying to learn? Why do you need to learn in this way? What's the best way to help you reach those goals? So I guess how can we kind of stop this wheel or this bad habit of putting that cart before the horse when it comes to analyzing people's learning needs? Yeah, it's an interesting one because I I, and this is a common one we see of you know people raising um, their biggest kind of feedback point being there's not enough L&D um, or learning opportunities during a performance review. Um, I'm not too sure that's the only time the feedback comes through. I think often it's refer we're referring to structured learning. Um, so during a performance review, and that's a whole other topic. You know, the, the reason if you're still doing annual performance reviews, I think it's really worth reviewing. Um, that I think more and more organizations are shifting to more of a continuous uh, feedback model where you're having those performance and development conversations more often. And it's a part of the, the kind of manager interactions with their uh, direct reports. And I think that creates the opportunity to get that feedback more often rather than if you're only ever hearing about learning and development once a year in that performance review, you're probably not having that conversation um, enough. Um, but I think it goes back to the idea of really being kind of output driven um, and putting out training rather than outcome focused. And if we were outcome focused, we'll be trying to discover the problems more often and really try to understand the performance challenges that the individuals are facing and how as an organization and managers, we could be uh, supporting the individuals to perform better. Um, and so it really does go back to the focus on solving the problem. If, if you're not trying to solve a problem, then you're wasting resources. And I think we keep saying that until that mindset shift happens, um, because otherwise what we do end up with is, is, is a situation where, you know, in a performance review, you have individuals telling you they're not getting enough L&D. Then a year later, they're saying the same thing. 
and that's the best way to to you know lose engagement of of your staff and eventually they'll leave because they're not being supported um in their growth i think that's a great point especially some of the the first things you mentioned there around the performance review is not the only time feedback's being given, but maybe it's the only time it's being captured. So maybe managers are being told a lot of the time day to day that I don't have enough of this or that. And then they kind of just, because there's no formalized way that you you now have to capture and communicate that they might be just glossing over it. And it's maybe about that active listening or being more proactive in, in the ways you see people communicate with each other. You can observe that someone isn't getting enough of this support before they tell you in six months time as well. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's it's recognizing that every performance conversation is a learning conversation, right? Because if you're underperforming or not uh, meeting your um, targets, then the question we should be asking is why, why, why? And when you're going through those five whys, eventually you get to the, the, the root cause, the problem. And that problem often you can solve um, with learning and development. Now, not always, right? It might be a um, it might be a tech problem. You know, you don't have the right tools. It could be a collaboration teamwork problem. Um, but if it is a learning problem, that stems from a performance. It's not often you're going to have someone coming up to you saying, "I feel like I don't have these skills." Or, um, you know, I feel like I need to learn more of this. And that's typically what happens in the performance review because you're quite explicitly being asked that question, right? You're being asked in a performance review, what, what area do you think you need to develop in? Sometimes it might not be as binary or as explicit. Um, and which is when I think people managers need to be enabled um, and, and really look out for those opportunities where when we're talking about performance, is to recognize the learning opportunities that are buried in that performance conversation. No, definitely. And actually coming back to some of the stuff around mindset, we've got a great question from Kevin in the chat, but what skills or mindsets do you think learning tech folk are missing uh, that they're not taking advantage of to utilize emerging learning tech effectively? What mindset skills for the end users? Uh, yeah, Kevin, actually, do you want to add a bit more context to the, the question? Sure thing. I mean, y'all were talking about emerging tech, so I, my ears perked right up. Uh, you mentioned that, um, you know, learning folks had to identify the problem first before using AR, VR, or AI. And uh, I think there's also the, a place where the, the emerging tech offers an opportunity. But, uh, for example, learning folk don't uh, aren't as well-versed in data and therefore can't make a good recommendations engine if you're trying to employ AI in your in your LXP or something like that. So what are some of those, those maybe it's a data or having a, a data-driven mindset or, or something else uh, that that keeps that, that keeps learning folk from uh, being able to take advantage of those new opportunities? Yeah, I, I think there's definitely an element of there's two extremes. You either get the extreme of, oh, there's a new bit of tech. Um, we, we need to use this to, to kind of come across, uh, to be progressive um, or to have a modern learning landscape or, or tech stack. Then the other extreme is, oh, no, this is new technology. We're not ready for this. Um, therefore, we're not going to touch this. And I think they're both um, unhealthy, right? Because they, they both um, 
going to, attracted towards tech for what I believe is, is are the wrong reasons. And this is where we go back to the kind of problem first mentality is, you know, you love the problem, not the solution. And when you love the problem and you really focus on that problem, you're now looking for what technology will help solve that problem for you. And you make the effort or bring in the talent, the skills uh, to do that. And so from a mindset perspective, um, I think it's the willingness to experiment, right? It's to, to, to really appreciate the fact that the solution isn't always going to come from the tools and tech that you're already familiar with. Right. It might require as an L&D team or as L&D professionals for us to have the mindset of experimenting with new technology and new tools. Um, because, you know, as the age old saying goes, if you're doing the same thing, but um, expecting different results, um, it's insanity. And, and so I think that willingness to experiment is, is critical for L&D professionals today um, and be willing to try, fail and iterate. I mean, it's a very definition of, of learning is that, right? Is that learning from that feedback loop. And um, also a bias towards action. Um, I think, and there's a difference between bias towards action and a bias towards output. And often right now, what we're doing is in, in a kind of obsession to create as much as we can, we stick to what we know because we haven't got time to, to go try other things because I need to go create hundreds and hundreds of courses. So I can't be trying other things. But a bias towards action is what can I do as quickly as possible that's going to help me learn what's working and what's not working, right? And that could mean, okay, there's a new bit of technology here. There's AR. Um, maybe this can help me solve that problem rather than, you know, um, hours and hours and days and weeks of ideating and putting together all of these big plans, et cetera. Try it out for a week. You know, get it in. Small group of people. Test it out. We're a very small problem that you're trying to solve. Does it move the needle on that behavior change, even in the smallest way? Are you getting the engagement that you weren't getting with the previous mode that you've um, tried out? That is what I mean by bias towards action, is rather than um, all of that time that's wasted on, um, on efforts that don't facilitate you learning what works and what doesn't work, a bias towards action that helps you learn very quickly around the things that are not working and are working. So I think there are a few things, and you know, these are fundamental mindset shifts of um, agile and lean practitioners, um, right? This isn't kind of reinventing the world, but often we know these things, but applying it and putting it into practice is where, where the challenge is. Um, and I think that's a combination of kind of cultural shifts, right? Is, is bringing others with you on that journey. And that's why um, I'm a big believer of starting small, thinking big. And, and that starting small helps you build initial data, uh, initial feedback um, that helps bring everyone else on that journey to say, oh, look, look, we tried this little thing out, right? AR seems to be working. Let, let's try this out, right? Um, and it goes back to a point you mentioned, Kevin. I think it's about being data informed, right? If you're not measuring the right things, you're not going to collect the data to build that narrative and to know whether you should pivot and iterate in the first place. Um, and so I think being data informed from the get-go really helps you understand um, and answer that question of what's working and what's not working. I love what you said there, Nelson, reminds me of the how you approach, how you trial a product. So a lot of the time, we only get like a seven-day or 14-day trial of a product and we just go in there with no intention. But like you said, if you want to try something on a small scale and you know the problem you're trying to solve, that theoretically you could trial a product for two weeks and, and use that data-led think small and can we scale this approach to to realize if a tool could actually work for you so maybe that's a, something people can apply when they uh, look at tech 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, I mean, we offer a free trial at How Now. One of the things that we learned very quickly was people want a trial because they want to feel like they've had a play around with it. But often what we saw um, companies or L&D professionals were doing was they weren't trialing it as much as we thought they should be trialing it, right? That we were like, come on, guys, really take it for a road test. Um, instead, it was often a kind of, you know, a bit of a browse, click here and there, see you can do some basic things. And what we realized was we really needed to focus uh, people when they're trialing tech to take a problem-focused mindset. So to, to really go, okay, what problem are you trying to solve and see whether this platform solves the problem for you? Because we'd rather know, uh, you know, we're not here to, to try to bring on everyone and anyone as possible. We'd much rather only work with partners who are confident that we can solve the problem for them. And we think it's important to start the relationship on that feeling. So we create a checklist, right? We create a checklist that focus people on going, look, which of these problems do you have? And if you have these problems, work your way through this checklist to see, does it do X for you? Does it do Y for you? Does it do Z for you? And I think um, if you're trialing any tool, um, I definitely recommend having that clarity around not what features you're looking for, but asking yourself the question of what problems do you want this tech or tool to be able to help you solve? And then when you're trialing it, see whether it solves those problems for you and bring other stakeholders onto it. You know, often we see people trialing the platform where it's just L&D professionals. And I'd really, really recommend getting other people from the business. You know, get some of your end users. The number of times I've seen people buy platforms without the, the end user, the employee ever having seen it. You know, it's a great opportunity to get them on the platform, get their feedback. Yeah, definitely. And then actually just one final follow-up question on this topic, but the mindset you mentioned around does this tech, new tech solve the problem can also be applied to your old tech. So I was reading a report recently that said 57% of employees think old legacy tech is holding them back and it's because we're probably not applying the same mindset to the existing tech does this tech still solve the problem and if not do we need to be more ruthless and scale it back or cull it so we can use the new tech right yeah and you know we've spoken about this before on the show around kind of the sunk cost fallacy um and it's the idea that you know at, at what point do you you, you kind of stop Right, you quit or you you kind of cancel that tool that you're using, and and often it turns into this thing where I spent so much time and money on this already. You know, if I cancel it now, all of that would be a waste. Rather than flipping the question and going, well, if I put any more time into this thing that I know isn't really working for me, aren't we just kind of growing the amount of resources we're wasting? And and I think it's it's really kind of doing away with the idea of sunk cost fallacy and really looking at the opportunity cost, right? The time, money, resources you're spending um, on this tool that's evidently not working for you, you could be spending that on trying out other tools, other technology that might help you solve that problem. Um, and I've, often it's worse where I think company where you, you're new L&D person, you've joined the company and you've just inherited uh, a tech stack that's, um, you know, that was put there by the predecessor. And I think you often find it's quite common in that situation where legacy tech gets taken out. Because when you're new to a job, you go in and you want to change everything the predecessor has done. Um, but you can't wait for a new person to come in for that to happen. I think it's important to have that review, that feedback loop uh, continuously. And exactly what you said, to, to ask the question of your legacy tech in the same way you would when you're buying new tech. Yeah, definitely. And I guess as well, it's... um having that self-awareness and psychological safety, like there might be a bit of an ego thing, like 
I spent two years championing this tool and it's it's okay to say now it doesn't work, right? We're, we've kind of surpassed the need for it, but having that sort of, it make, people making you feel comfortable enough with the environment to say, you know what, this was good for this long and now it doesn't work and I'm okay with the fact that we spent that time because it's about what problems we're trying to solve now. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. And I think it, it's it's the perception of failing or failure, right? It's, it's if you see, you know, buying um the wrong bit of tech and investing time and money and then realizing it didn't work if you perceive that as a failure in the organization uh, or as a personal failure rather than looking at it as an experiment we learned from right? um and i think that's a really really important thing for learning in general um for an organization to have the culture in terms of how they perceive and treat failure within the organization um but it's absolutely critical for an L&D team who are um, constantly trying things out to see what works and what doesn't work. And if you get into a mindset where you feel like everything that doesn't work looks like you're failing, then I think it's going to be very hard um, to be able to iterate and find the actual solution that that delivers. And so I think that kind of fear of failure is, is not um, you know, it's counterintuitive for any kind of learning to take place, especially when L&D teams are trying to learn what helps learning um i think it's completely counterproductive absolutely and speaking of culture and how and when people do learning i wanted to ask you about how important you think the ability to work flexibly is to learning and development so for a bit more context we talk about moments of need but also there's moments of inspiration so if you know say it's nine o'clock at night and i get a great brainwave quickly and I want to follow that rabbit hole and learn something if I'm in a company where the structure is very nine to five you're online between these hours I'm probably less inclined to follow that curiosity and that moment of inspiration and instead try and learn within the nine to five so I guess that culture around flexibility of working to give people the space when inspiration does take place to to learn is probably quite important isn't it yeah and I wouldn't say it's flexibility in general right I think one of the the kind of fundamental pillars of future of work is and will be is optionality right i think it's this idea of giving empowering each individual to own um and shape their work life um and that's whether you know where you're working how you're working um and how you're learning is is a big part of that and i think that will come to define um the future of work and so to be able to give that optionality, I think an important shift, and I, I know this is one of the things we're going to discuss, but I, I'll bring it up, that the idea of four-day work week when we talk about kind of flexible working. Now, I know there's a lot of um, momentum building behind the idea. And you know, we might see in the next few years moving towards a four-day week in more and more companies. However, I actually think that's not a major paradigm shift. I mean, we're, we're coming to almost 100 years of the five-day uh, work week, which I think started um, by Ford, which was the first shift from six-day work uh, work week to a five-day work week, and all we're doing now is iterate on that to go from five-day work week to a four-day work week. You know, it's not revolutionary and it's not a paradigm shift. Um, in fact, we're still doing the same thing, which is one size fits all. Right? We're still assuming that four-day work week is the right work week um, for every type of job role and every company in every sector, which takes away from the fundamental idea of optionality, right? Um, what if, you know, I need to do the school runs, you know, what, what if, um, you know, I'm caring 
uh, someone or I've got long-term illness or, you know, there's so many different reasons where I might need a different type of flexibility that's not supported by the four-day work week. And so I think the key piece there is a shift towards out-focused work, right? Where it's no longer the idea of nine to five or five days or four days. Um, it's really about um, what work do you need to get done? And if you're going to get that done in three days, if you're going to get that done in three hours, so be it, right? But it's a clarity of an organization where you're able to define that outcome. Now, when you have that clarity around the outcomes you need to be able to achieve, it's less about where you're working, how long you're working for. And that's also critical for L&D because now the focus will become what learning and development can we offer um, employees to help them achieve those outcomes in the most efficient and uh, effective way possible. And, and I think that's where flexibility comes in, uh, where I think a lot of the ways we're discussing flexibility now, um, we think it's flexible to go from a five day to four day, but actually, why is it any more flexible than five days, right? It's still being prescribed one size fits all. So I'm not too sure um, that's the, the flexibility people need. Yeah. Um, but yeah, flexibility and optionality is, is critical for, for people learning in a way, uh, in the moments that matter to them. Yeah, no, that's a great point because actually we're still about two months away from this four-day work week test. I think it's being done in the UK, but also Australia and a few other countries. We're still a couple of months yeah. away from that ending and we don't have the, the, the sort of insights from it yet, but that's a great point. It could just be that it's still rigidity in the same way. We're still we're not actually being flexible because all we're doing is just cramming everything from a five day into a four week. And actually it could even be less flexible because you don't get those chances to go and do the things that you, like you mentioned that, you know, supposedly a four day work week helps you with, but actually you just get one extra free day and that maybe doesn't help you do the school run or all of those things. So um, yeah, be interested to see what the findings are from that report when it, I guess it'll be sort of mid next year. Yeah. I think a lot of the research from other, um, you know, there are other European countries that have been kind of rolling out research around it. You know, some countries have found, um, like, for example, in, in Sweden, um, they found it wasn't actually, um, it didn't have a significant impact on increasing productivity. Whereas I know in other European countries or even organizations like Microsoft have found um, it has a positive impact on productivity. There's environmental benefits. But again, about being data informed, it's important we look at this data in the wider context, right? Um, it definitely reduces your carbon emissions at an organizational level. But what I'd love to find out is with that extra day of leisure, what is the overall impact on carbon emissions? You know, are we now out more? Are we spending more? Are we, and as a result of that, is there an uplift in carbon emissions? So we've got to be careful around, you know, that's the interesting thing about data. You can use it in different ways to build the narrative that you want to tell. And so it's really important we look at the data within its context and really understand the, the kind of variables at play. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's, again, it's, the answer to this is never going to be black and white. It's, it's similar to the question of, is it remote or is it office, right? In the same way, it's not that black and white and binary. I think the same is true for five-day work week and four-day work week. And, you know, I know we've tried it at How Now, where we decided to go with a wind down Friday um, to, to tackle this because it was evident four day work we wouldn't have worked for every single job role and team within the organization. Um, and so we tried wind down Fridays where you've got your Friday afternoons and you can use that for a no meeting deep work or you can take, take it off and do that. And I think that level of kind of flexibility and optionality um, 
is is I think far more future of work than than going from five days to four days. And it's a great point that links back to someone mentioned earlier, but the current test is six months. So, but the, I would ask why? Because what if we're two months into that test and everyone hates it already and we wait four more months? So it's kind of like that. Can we scale this? Do we need, you know, in turn that you could try one thing for two weeks, one thing for another two weeks, something else for another two weeks. And then you've got six weeks where every two weeks you collect a set of data and then you can actually maybe work out if it needs to be rolled out. And it doesn't need to be a whole company that tries a certain thing as well, does it? So it's quite interesting how that, that links back to what we said earlier. Um, you mentioned Microsoft there, actually, and that's another good segue because the next question I want to ask you about is whether an excessive meeting culture is the enemy of learning. And the reason I mentioned Microsoft there is that they recently um, ran this study internally where they were experimenting with employees using headspace between uh, meetings and sessions for 10 minutes to give them a chance to reset, focus and engage. And it basically showed that there was a a lack of breaks is bad for people's ability to manage stress and their brain function and, and to process what they're having happening in those meetings. So I guess that probably links back to how we learn, because if we can't process what's happening in meetings, if our brain function, our stress levels are worse, um, yeah, we're not going to be able to retain or apply information as effectively. And you mentioned at the end of the book, actually, that people shouldn't waste their times in meetings. So um, what Microsoft are doing is now all their meetings by default start at five past the hour, meaning that there is that space between meetings. But yeah, in a roundabout way, what do you think about excessive meeting culture? Is that harmful for how people learn? Yeah, I think I'd look at this from an L&D perspective and then from the learner's perspective, the, the employee. From an, in the book, the, the reference to kind of don't overdo it with the meetings is more reference in terms of the L&D teams um, when you're trying to um, develop and implement and test learning experiences and your L&D strategy. It's going back to the point I mentioned earlier around having a bias towards action is rather than spending hours and days in meetings and uh, you know trying multiple sign-offs and multiple discussions around it, spend the time up front on discovering the problem and coming up with your hypothesis on how you think you can solve that problem. Then have a bias towards action where you get out there and test your idea, gather feedback, and then look at that feedback and iterate on it. And, and for that, it's, it's about prioritizing and getting out there and, and speaking to your internal customer, the employee, and gathering as much feedback as quickly as possible. Um, and that doesn't happen in hours and days of meetings. And so I think it's more a case of um, focusing on getting things done and learning about what works and what doesn't work rather than spending too much time in uh, meetings. And from, a, you know, from an employee learner's perspective, I can definitely, you know, if your calendar is packed with meetings and you're jumping from one meeting to other, um, and, you know, we've all kind of probably read and heard about kind of Zoom fatigue if you're doing hybrid remote meetings and uh, constantly being switched on and engaged is exhausting. Right. Um, and so if you're that exhausted, your mind is not ready um, to, you know, you're not in the mind frame to, to learn or to be able to have the energy and to to invest your time and energy in, in learning new things and trying those new things out. Um, so I think one of the things we can definitely look at both from a learning and work perspective is um, async work and async learning. You know, um, right now, the default, what we saw post-COVID was a lot of organizations who were classroom training heavy 
what they did was essentially once we went into lockdown, they moved everything online. They were doing exactly what they were doing in the classroom, but they were doing it over Zoom. And um, now that on top of hours and hours of Zoom meetings um, is exhausting. So it's really about asking yourself the question of what needs to be asynchronous and what needs to be synchronous, whether that's work or whether that's learning. And so does it need a synchronous meeting or can you do this asynchronous? You know, could you do this through a knowledge sharing platform? Could you do this through a doc that you're collaborating on? Are there other asynchronous ways? And the same is true for learning. Um, you know, packing in synchronous learning is just as bad as packing in meetings as the only way of, of collaborating with your team. So I think a asynchronous, again, I think is there are a whole bunch of technology companies who um, do this and have got best practices out there. I think it's um, GitLab um, have got an incredible handbook around how they work asynchronously, um, which I definitely recommend taking a look at. Um, but yeah, I think meetings are counterproductive for productivity as well as learning. Definitely. Uh, there's just two more questions I wanted to ask you about, Nelson. So I'll, I'll just remind anyone joining us live that if there's anything you want to ask, just pop it in the chat and we'll try and get to it. Um, but yeah, one thing we spoke about before is the end of compliance culture. But what I hadn't realized until I read some data recently around this is that maybe it's actually being driven by employees. So there was this interesting stat in a Mind Tools report that basically in 2018, 20% of employees were saying they were learning for personal development as the primary reason, which has risen to 57% uh, in last year's report. And then there's been a decrease in the amount of people who said they were learning purely for mandatory sort of compliance um, purposes. It decreased from 59% in 2018 to just 29% in the most recent one. So yeah, we're kind of seeing in the numbers that maybe employees are also helping drive this end of the compliance culture as well. Yeah, and I think this is goes to the point of learning is taking place with or without L&D teams, right? Um, and the question is, what is L&D's role now? And I think that the, the kind of statistics you just shared demonstrates that. You know, people are self-directing their learning um, for their own motivations of personal development. Now, the question is, what is L&D's role in making that more effective and more efficient? Um, and I think where L&D can play a role is, is in make, reducing the friction in that process of, of finding relevant learning that's going to help someone develop personally, um, but also helping individuals become aware of the unknown unknowns, right? Often the things that we're self-directed to learn are the things that we're already aware that we're lacking, right? I might already know um, and leadership is an area that I need to develop on, and therefore I'm directing myself to, to go learn and become better at that particular skill. Um, but there's probably a whole bunch of areas that are the unknown unknowns. And this is where L&D professionals can really help individuals in the organization become aware of those unknown unknowns and point them in that direction. Um, and I think it's healthy. Um, you know, often L&D have been the kind of custodians and owners of learning and development within an organization. Um, and I don't think that's the, when you have that, you end up with a very top-down um, learning culture, which often results in only compliance mandatory training or only training around processes or skills that the business sees are, are, are relevant. But I think this shared ownership that we're now starting to see that kind of comes from self-directed learning and employees taking an ownership of their own development and the business also taking ownership over the individual's development. And I think that shared ownership 
of learning and development is is going to be important for for how we go about uh, learning in the future of work. Absolutely. And speaking of L&D's role, actually, the last question I had here for you was, it was around the competence confidence loop. Have you heard of this thing before? No, I haven't. Um, it's basically the, it's a fancy way of saying that competence breeds confidence. So in the way that a weightlifter spends a lot of time with lighter weight, going through the patterns and the motions and learning the technique, it's the competence they build doing that gives them the confidence to go and make those big competition winning lifts. And the same thing applies at work. The more we build up comp- like competence in the way we do things, the more we gain confidence to go and do them independently. And yeah, well, I was hearing it out of context, but actually I think it's something that applies to L&D and the role it has. If we can create the conditions for people to develop competence in small batches that then gives them the confidence when there is no en- intervention from anyone else to do the thing independently. So I was just curious to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I mean, that's, it's definitely a really, really interesting one. I thought I've learned something there, Gary. Um, but I think definitely the building the confidence doesn't happen, I think, just from the learning part, from just engaging with learning resources or taking a course, for, for example. I think the, the confidence which results in the confidence building I think comes from the practice and the feedback loop that that generates, right? It is when I've learned something, you know, if, if I'm a salesperson and I've just learned a new negotiation um, skill and I can go take that bit of knowledge, apply it on a call with a customer, see it working, get that positive feedback, that gives me um, the confidence to kind of keep going on that learning loop. And we spoke about this, I think it was on the last show around the learning flywheel. Um, and I think the reason why I believe learning is a flywheel is the momentum builds like you said the, the kind of that confidence gives you the confidence to keep going on that learning loop um and so i think a big part of that to help people build that competence is is the practice and application of that knowledge i think too much of lnd strategy still today is focused around content consumption right it's around did you complete this course um and did you acquire this knowledge and we test that through assessments and quizzes um, but the competence doesn't come from just getting a nine out of 10 out of a, in a multiple choice quiz. I need to know that I can transfer this knowledge into a, a relevant context. And that comes from things like uh, simulations, stretch assignments, mini projects, um, where I can apply the knowledge I've acquired um, and transfer that in a relevant context and get feedback from it to see whether it worked or didn't work. And that gives you the confidence. And that's why I also think confidence is is a great measure a qualitative measure um of whether your learning is is actually having an impact or not um you know i think it's, it says a lot if you know just to go back to the sales example if a sales rep is saying actually i feel more confident today than i did six months ago because of the learning i've done um and the learning that's been offered that, that's a really strong um uh, a bit of feedback to build the narrative around the impact learning is having um, on the organization and the business performance. Yeah, definitely. And I guess as well, what you made me think about there is that validation is a two-way street. So how you give people validation matters and how you collect it from other people matters. So like you said, a, a knowledge test or like a knowledge check at the end of a course is great because it does give you an indication of competence. But imagine if someone else came to you and said, 
I've noticed how much better your sales calls are for this reason. And that validation from a, a person is a lot more useful to you probably from that confidence perspective. And the same thing, you know, L&D's confidence is coming from the fact that people are providing validation for what they do works because they're collecting the right kind of feedback at the right moments as well. Yeah, definitely agree. Cool. Well, that brings us to the end of the show, Nelson. So thanks a lot for for answering the questions, taking the time to, uh, to have that conversation. And thanks to everyone who could join us live. And that brings us to the end of today's episode. I really enjoyed that conversation with Nelson and I hope you did too. It was great to dive into some of the trending issues and topics and things we've never really discussed on the show before. I also wanted to remind you quickly that L&D Disrupt happens live every two weeks on a Wednesday at 11am UK time. And we would love to see as many of you as possible joining us live to help shape the conversations and also to build the community and shape what that becomes too. So if you want to join us on any of the future episodes in real time, you can head to lu.ma forward slash how now and see all the upcoming episodes. And this is also where we'll be adding future episodes that are currently to be confirmed. So thanks again and see you next time.